Hello and welcome to a special episode of Spectator Radio. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and your host for the next half hour as we discuss how to deal with the rising cost of energy. As the global shortage of gas continues to drive up prices and bills, a cost of living crisis looms over the UK. How can we protect those facing fuel poverty when bills are predicted to rise, for some, by hundreds of pounds? And as the government heads into COP26, how do ministers frame the current crisis within its plans for a green future? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Rebecca Seidler, who is EDF's Corporate Policy and Regulation Director, Alan Brown MP, the SNP Shadow Minister for Energy and Climate Change, and Johnny Marshall, a Senior Economist at the Resolution Foundation. This podcast is kindly sponsored by EDF. Rebecca, let's start with you. The wholesale gas price has risen by 70% since August. Bills for millions could go up by hundreds of pounds this winter alone. How do we begin to tackle this looming cost of living crisis? So I think it's incredibly worrying for all consumers of energy, not just residential, but of course business consumers. And we've already seen the immediate impacts that that's had on businesses in the in the media and of course wider supply chain. You know, throughout the winter period, customers on residential tariffs have a price cap that limits the increases to to their bills that period. But what we're concerned about going forward, as you mentioned, with the dramatic prices we're seeing, is what's going to happen beyond that. And indeed, the wider costs that are going to affect all of our consumer goods I'm really, really pleased that we're having this discussion on the day where the government has finally issued the heat and building strategy because, you know, the most obvious way to protect ourselves from energy price increases is, of course, to use less energy. Eco schemes so the energy company obligation, which provides investment for low income houses to have insulation services and a whole host actually of energy efficiency services to support lower energy bills. However, I think the dramatic price increases we're seeing at the moment really require a bit of a longer term, more strategic think through about how to manage cost of living increases and particularly the the impact that we're going to see very shortly on, on people's bills. I think that the price regulation in energy is a good thing and should be here to say. I think, however, the price cap that we have in place probably needs a bit of modernising. And I think we need to do much more to encourage sustainable energy players in the market that not only offer low prices, but good service and real meaningful customer propositions to support energy efficiency and net zero. We're going to come back to the several strategies put out by the government and its ambition to achieve net zero by 2050. But first, stick with the short term. Alan, you've been vocal in Parliament in the past about fuel poverty in the UK. What is your perspective about what we should be doing about just the coming months alone? So in the coming months, I think actually one key ask would be for the UK government to reverse the £20 a week universal credit cut that they've just implemented. If we think people are paying over £1,000 for their energy, the energy cap's going up over £100, taking £1,000 off the people that are the, the poorest in our society makes no sense. So in the very short term, that's something that needs to happen, is reverse that universal credit cut. I think then the government's got to look at how they can get more money to those that are struggling to pay their bills. We'll have the Warren Homes discount, 
I'm aware that some of the engine companies have called for a social tariff to try and help people. Now, I'm in favour of that as a very short-term measure, but the reality is measures like the social tariff or even the one homes discount is actually paid by other energy users. So you're always creating another cohort that are struggling to pay their energy bills. And it's actually these, technically these measures are regressive because the poorest technically paying, in terms of their income, they're paying a much higher share towards these policies. So I actually need to have a radical rethink of how energy is paid for going forward. And that for me means stronger government in intervention. It really means paying for policies by general taxation rather than continue to add levies onto consumers' energy bills. Alan, how would you fund the uplift to UC? It's estimated to be roughly £6 billion extra a year. Would you borrow it? Would you cut elsewhere? Would you put another 1.25% on this new national insurance levy? Where would you say the money for that should come from? Well, it could be different forms of taxation. So you could modify capital gains tax, actually to make that equitable with income tax rates. So that in itself could actually bring in the, the money needed to offset that £6 billion. You could increase the minimum wage, increase the minimum wage to the national living wage. By default, if people are earning more money, then the universal credit bill goes down anyway. So that, that, that's another way of trying to rebalance the economy a bit. And there's also a reality as bills have went up. UK government treasury, they're getting more money in VAT offer energy bills. They're getting extra oil and gas revenues at the moment and they're getting extra uh, petrol duty because petrol and diesel at the pumps has been a massive one price. So the government's actually getting more money than they budgeted for anyway. So they could use some of that to offset paying for other measures. Johnny, the reality is that there's a global gas shortage, and as much as the government wishes it could control prices, say through the energy price cap, if prices are going up worldwide, there's really nothing Parliament can do to control that. Exactly. Yeah. There's nothing we can do in the short term to change the price of gas. We can respond in two ways. We can either improve people's incomes or reduce their outgoings. And as Alan said, you know, improving people's incomes, specifically those most affected by higher energy costs, the best way to do that would have been not to remove the universal credit uplift. In light of that being done, there are a few other options to do it. We can change the sort of rebate programme, so the warm home discount offers £140 back on energy bills to low-income households and pensioners on pension credit, that can be expanded to more people, that can be uprated, that value hasn't changed since 2015, despite energy bills have gone up quite a lot in the past few months, and we'll go up more in April. We could extend the cold weather payment scheme, which offers rebates on energy bills when temperature drops below zero degrees for a week. That could be made more generous, less stringent on conditions, again, to help with energy costs when bills are at their highest. But the price cap does insulate you know, most families from from these higher energy costs. You know, higher income households are more likely to switch, so they're already prote protected by being in fixed term deals. Low income households are less likely to switch, so the price tap keeps them insulated from volatile gas markets. And it should remain in place until we're in a position to ultimately get the UK off gas and onto cheaper and you know less volatile priced energy sources. Rebecca, Alan mentioned social tariffs, uh, which he says have trade-offs, but EDF have called for them to help with the rising cost of energy bills. Can you tell us a bit more about social tariffs and, and why you would support them? So I guess we, in an ideal world, we would like all energy consumers to be able to engage with the market, particularly as we develop more heterogeneous 
solutions, encompassing energy, energy efficiency, heat as a service, whatever the future may hold for us, and encourage consumers to to engage to get the best deals, to get the most fitting propositions for them that deliver good value for their circumstances. However, the point was just very well made about what we observe between those who do and who those who don't engage with the markets and the demographics, you know, in general. And so I think that the case is being made at the moment by many parties for a social tariff. And we really need to go back again, as I said earlier, to what price regulation is appropriate for the market and who is it there to protect. I think that we're going to see really really difficult situations because of the level of prices that are going to go up particularly from April and at a time where the sector resilience you know the ability of energy suppliers to support charities and other consumer organizations who are working with customers will be very very low because at the moment the energy sector as a whole is experiencing extreme financial losses. You know, please just go and look at everyone's accounts and to see what's happening. It's not just smaller, less resilient players going bankrupt. And so I agree that we need to really rethink what is appropriate to be offered via an energy retailer. But we also need to consider what's appropriate, as as was just said, to come by the more general welfare system. I think there's another debate to be had about what exactly is on bills. At the moment, as we know, we've got a, a load of policy costs that make electricity bills much higher than gas bills, but also just raise the total amount of a bill. There's a strong argument to suggest that those costs should be would be more progressively funded through general taxation rather than consumer bills. Alan, the way we're talking about this so far makes it sound less like energy policy and more like welfare policy. Maybe that's not so wrong. If we want to transition to greener products, greener energy, there's going to be costs involved. So is it better perhaps to just acknowledge that and then top up or support those who can't afford it? I think you're right. It's very much a welfare and fairness issue. So if we look at we need to decarbonise our heating system. It's estimated that it's going to cost £250 million by the year 2050. So therefore, if we're going to make that equitable, we need to understand how it's going to get paid for. And that needs long-term government thinking. So as Rebecca said, at the moment, a lot of energy policy is paid for by levies on our energy bills. So nearly a quarter of our electricity bills at the moment is actually due to different policies smart meters, the renewable energy policies through contracts for difference. So that, that's all added to our electricity bills at the moment. That's unsustainable, so therefore it should be a long-term look. And, it, and it's not just, you know, it's welfare for those that are struggling the most, but there's, as I said earlier on, there's always another cohort who enter a, a kind of struggling to pay their energy bills, and that, that's why government needs a much longer-term look at it which unfortunately for me goes back to general taxation because you, you really need to... The thing about general taxation is those that can afford to pay the most should be paying more. It's the most progressive way of doing it and it's something that government's really frightened of. Clearly the Conservative Party come in with a pledge not to raise taxes. They've imposed the national insurance increase and there's been a backlash because of that. But part of the problem with the NI increase though is again that's regressive because it had hits those that can least afford it, they're, they're effectively paying a higher burden relative to their income. So again, I just ask the government to be bold and have a rethink and actually just 
have to face the reality that general taxation is going to have to be used. Johnny, I suspect if we had a Conservative MP around the table, they would say, well, look, the COVID crisis changed everything. We have to hike taxes in order to deal with the vast amount of borrowing that we've done over the past year and a half. But that's not going to be a sustainable way to we can just borrow our way to net zero. And if you look at the Treasury's assessment, the net zero review that's also come out, it's very honest about the fact that it's very difficult to put figures on this. They just don't know how the technology may change, how the economy might look in terms of getting to 2050. I mean, is there some truth to the argument that as well-intentioned as it is, We've possibly bitten off more than we can chew with the legally binding date of 2050. So the 2050 date is in line with what the science is telling us, and that is now legally binding in the UK, and that's something we're all, we're all working to. You know, what the Treasury said around costs shows what's happened in the past in terms of costs of technologies falling when you've had well-designed, targeted policy solutions aimed at that. So look what's happened to the cost of batteries, offshore wind, all the usual examples. We can replicate that going forwards, and we should replicate that going forwards so that we don't have to subsidise everything, so we can figure out what part of making a heat pump, for example, is expensive, what the bottleneck is, target funds at that, and then end up with cheaper unit costs so that everyone can benefit. Not that we, don't, not that we have to subsidise everything through tax, so that things are just cheaper to buy, like it's happened with electric vehicles. And as net zero becomes, you know, it's core to this government's sort of thinking, as you can see with the net zero strategy coming out today, it's very wide-ranging. And it should be core to how we as a country look at the decade coming and beyond that. And as such, net zero should be part of you know, all policy thinking, all policy discussions. So you don't end up with, has been in the past, climate policy butting up against welfare policy, against business policy. So that sort of, you know, net zero is a core driver, of, a core sort of factor of economic change in all thinking. So you don't have to come to these trade-offs later on than you would do normally. So you can see them before and design policy around them. Alan, to to bring it back to what we're about to experience over the next few months, is the energy crisis that's coming down the track, this looming cost of living crisis, going to influence people potentially away from this goal of, of net zero? And how do we go about ensuring that that right balance is struck between what people can afford in the moment and that overall goal of having a cleaner, greener country? I think that's a very wider discussion. And again, that that goes back to government having to have a long-term plan and be able to present that long-term plan in a coherent way that people understand. They need to be able to understand it's not the poorest that are going to pick up the burden of the transition. And certainly within Parliament, there's a cohort of Conservative MPs are starting to lobby behind the scenes at government and they're talking about the cost of the energy transition. Now, in a way, that should be a good thing because we need to have an open discussion about costs, but it's got to be cost and fairness. And I don't think where these Conservative MPs are coming from, I think they're just railing against cost, and that's not going to be good for the argument. Another thing is we need to always remember and bring into the mix the fact that we want people to have access to fair heating. And that also means, again, back to installing energy efficiency. So if people actually see energy efficiency measures, been rolled out, they can actually then see their bills potentially reducing or at least you know offsetting the increased cost in energy. We spoke earlier on too about, about funding, so there's actually opportunities here as well. So rolling out energy efficiency across the UK, a proper heat pump strategy, that, that can create jobs, it can create long-term skilled jobs if you've got the proper financial planning in place, because what's happened too often 
government schemes have been stop start. They've announced schemes like the Green Homes Grant, then they didn't think it was working out, and then they pulled the plug on it. Well, that actually takes away consumer confidence because people don't trust what the government's doing then. So actually, again, having long-term plans that are going to work and create these jobs will actually help improve the wealth of people, and therefore that will offset the concerns about rising costs as well. Rebecca, could you tell us a bit more about the vulnerability commitment that EDF has signed up to? So this is a commitment pioneered by Energy UK that many large suppliers in the industry, and it's essentially a set of standards that we'll commit to to support customers, particularly vulnerable low-income households who are struggling with their bills. And it relates to you know, flexibility on payments, such as a green payment plan, the contact access that we'll supply, provide those customers the support that we'll work with our consumer groups and charities and ensure they have appropriate information. I think it is worth making that point as well that so many customers don't understand the support that's available to them. You know, we've talked about warm home discount and uh, a number of other government schemes here. If you think about that from a customer side, it's quite confusing. It's quite difficult to access, particularly, you know, if you're someone who isn't digitally literate, for example, you could be waiting on phone lines, not knowing who to call, not knowing what you're, you've got available to access. So it's essentially a set of standards to ensure we are really doing all that we can for those customers struggling with their bills. And in fact, most of them, it's kind of BAU for EDF and I have to say many other suppliers. It's pretty much good practice, but it's really, really good to see the call for this to be made much more explicit and actually much more uniform across the sector. That's a good point, isn't it, Johnny, that for you know most people out there, I would certainly say myself included, you get lost in the number of schemes that are open to you potentially. And really, it's just a question of whether or not your bills are going up and down and whether or not you can afford it. So is there a bit of a communication problem here as well, especially as people see their bills rising, that they won't necessarily know where to turn? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about who gets in touch with, who you, who you speak to about your energy bill, it's your supplier. And what we've seen in the past few months, in the past few weeks even, is you know, a whole host of suppliers go under. And without a sort of constant source of information in your life to ask what sort of support is available to me, what's happening to the price cap, you know, what's, what is my gas bill going to go up so much? It's hard for people that aren't engaged in the energy system to, to keep up to date. And this is, you know, this is something that's been a long-term issue in the, in the energy sector. A lot, of the, a lot of the benefits of the net zero transition involve sort of people buying into it, sort of adapting their behaviour and becoming more efficient. So, you know, using electricity when it's more abundant, when it's windy and it's cheaper, for example, to make these structural changes to bring down bills for everybody. We need to find a way of improving the relationship between families just getting by, going about their business and the companies that provide them provide them with energy. And that can be a company-led scheme, a supplier-led scheme, or it can be something that the government takes a lead on and, and starts the conversation about as well. Rebecca, last theme here. There's been some speculation that fuel poverty could helpfully be reduced through digitization, that you don't necessarily have to have a brand new scheme put into place. You don't necessarily have to have made great gains in your net zero transformation, that simply moving more online could do a lot to help people manage their bills. So what would that entail? Could it really be useful? So I think that this relates to smart meter rollout and half hourly settlement and better just better reporting of household consumption and 
you know, we know that there are many different apps and digital propositions that easily present this to a customer. So, yes, I can definitely see the logic that increased digital fluency, you know, underpinned with smart meters and half hourly settlement will enable someone to better understand their their consumption and then relating that to price, i.e., you know, trying to use less when prices are high in the day and more or, you know, the necessary things you need to do when they're low. However, I'm a believer that there will be flexible time of use propositions related not just to how we consume in the household with small devices, but of course to our electric vehicles when they're rolled out on mass and heat pumps in the future, which will be by far the main sources of kind of flexibility and consumption in a household. And that the technology that brings this to customers digitally will essentially mean very, very low effort and engagement for the customer because the reality is, is that most people lead busy lives with fairly set schedules and just, you know, I know when I've got my kids calling out for dinner, I really, really don't have time to think about when I'm putting on the dishwasher or not. We all lead busy lives and have different demands made of us. I think that there will be technology developed to make this much more fluid for customers and also to risk manage what could happen because I think we've got some lessons to learn from what happened in Texas with flexible propositions and indeed what customers would be subject to today given prices and the kind of one-way trend they've had if they were exposed to the full risk of volatile markets. But, to, you know, to answer your question, I think digital will play a huge part in this. So in terms of going digital, if we want to go digital, then we need to remember there's many areas in the rural parts of the UK they don't have broadband connectivity at the moment and they don't have 5G, so that needs to be addressed as well if we're going to go digital because there's people in the rural areas that are more likely to be fuel poor as well, so we really need to get, get a grip of digital connectivity as well. Rebecca, this net zero strategy that we've been talking around very much places nuclear energy at the centerpiece of achieving carbon neutral country by 2050. But a lot of people are saying it's too little too late for the crises that we're experiencing now. It's absolutely true that you can't build a nuclear power station in a matter of months. These are huge, huge infrastructure construction projects, a number of years in the full construction cycle. However, what we have learned from this crisis is that we need to change the energy system of this country to reduce our dependency on gas. And the only way that we will deliver a low carbon, secure, affordable system is to have, as you know, every credible study shows, a certain amount of our capacity coming from nuclear power stations. Now, throughout the 2020s, many of the existing nuclear reactors in this country will be coming to the end of their life. And of course, we are already underway with Hinkley Point C, which is due to come online 2026, but we will need more nuclear power generation beyond that. Now, that could be from large-scale gigawatt-sized projects like Sizewall C. It could also come from new nuclear technology, which is being developed through small media reactors, small modular reactors, etc. However, it's a critical segment of a diverse secure, affordable, low carbon power system. So I think that we can't have a knee jerk reaction 
to what we need and can deliver in the short term. Indeed, there isn't technology that we can deliver in the short term that would provide a low carbon power system. That's why the UK power system is using so much gas by generation today. But of course, that only exacerbates the issue that we've got with our dependence on gas. So we need to look for technologies that will give us some sovereign energy supply and reduce that dependency. Alan, do you think the government's right to be focusing so much on nuclear energy? No, would be my answer in one word, but yeah, the SNP, we, we're against new nuclear, and I must admit, I think fundamentally it's the wrong option. Hinkley Point is now estimated to cost £23.5 billion. It's the most expensive power station to be constructed in the world ever. If you're asking me how would I spend £20 billion, it wouldn't be another new nuclear power station. It could fundamentally pay for the energy efficiency upgrades that are required to homes and itself then lowers the demand for energy but other renewable energy sources can be used. In fact, nuclear is not renewable anyway, it's low carbon but it's not renewable, we're still left with the nuclear waste issue. Now the existing nuclear waste legacy is going to cost something like £132 billion to clear up. So that, it's not something we want to be recreating. Now in Scotland, the SSE they want to proceed with a scheme at Quarry Glass, pump storage hydro. Now, pump storage hydro, that allows electricity to be dispatched when, there, when there's low demand. So if the, the wind's not blowing, that's when you release the energy back into the system through pump storage hydro. There's an argument that nuclear is required for balance intermittency of renewables. But the problem with nuclear is it continues to pump a base load into the system. So therefore, sometimes you actually have an overload, then you have to turn off your wind turbines and you're paying to close down the wind turbines because you've got nuclear base load in the system. So that nuclear and renewables don't actually blend well together, and I think we need to have a, a radical rethink. And good energy and energy systems catapult, they actually produced a report that shows how you can get to net zero by 2050 without the use of nuclear. Then up in Orkney at the moment, we've actually got tidal energy generation, and that's at the stage where that's ready to move up to scale, it just needs the government support to be able to get to the scaling up. And again, that would provide stable, dependable, renewable energy. And in the long term, that could provide something like 5% of the UK's energy. So that would be providing a base load that again would offset the need for any new nuclear. Rebecca Allen's laid out options there that cut nuclear out altogether. How do you respond to that? I think that, as I said, if you look at the studies that underpin the Energy White Paper produced by Bayes, if you look at the studies issued by National Grid, indeed, if you look at what underpins the six carbon budget by the CCC, the case for new nuclear is pretty well made in in those publications. I do believe that as technology progresses, and the economics of the technology changes as it becomes more more to scale, then potentially you will see a different configuration of a system. But at the moment, we have to progress based on technology and cost that we have a certain level of risk that we're prepared to take today. And that's clearly why the government is supporting new nuclear projects. 
Johnny, what do you make of the trade-offs here? Because there are concerns that other forms of renewable energy aren't reliant enough, as we've even seen these past few months. It, to put it very simply, it hasn't been very windy and it hasn't been very sunny. So wind power and solar power have not been able to perform as, as much as they otherwise could. Nuclear is thought to be, you know, when it's working as it should, a more reliable form of energy, but it is still a disproportionately expensive form of clean energy. We are going to be asking the taxpayer to fund its subsidize its creation and then also pay their electricity bills and their energy bills. How do we go about scrutinizing the cost value analysis here? So the main issue with the power sector is just delays on decisions of building anything and updating the system in a way. All we've done in the past few years is build offshore wind turbines, plug them into the grid and assume everything's going to be fine. We haven't you know, we haven't made decisions on nuclear that have been long-standing for decades. We've been building no onshore wind, no solar, no tidal. We've not been investing in batteries. We've not been modernising our system to cope when it's not windy, but also to get to get to our new target, our 2035 zero carbon power sector target. On nuclear in specific, you know, it is very expensive. The way that Hinkley was funded puts all the risk of delivery on developers, on the developer, which is why the cost is so high because the you know, it's often hard to borrow money from, from banks and from pension funds when there isn't a previous example of this type of nuclear power station being built. And the way that the industry seems to want to bring costs down is through a mechanism which will transfer that risk onto bill payers. So not onto taxpayers, but onto bill payers. Mm-hmm. So where low-income households will pay disproportionately more. And, you know, whether the government goes ahead with new nuclear or not, doing it in a way that puts put low-income households on the hook for a bill for a power station, which you know won't even start generating by the time the, the levy goes on bills, isn't the way to fund it. What needs to be done is, by all means, the cost of electricity should reflect the cost of generating it, whether nuclear or not, but bill payers should not be on the hook for the construction risk. Rebecca, there have been briefings that if the government is to invest in nuclear, that Sizewell C may be the ultimate prize. Now, that's going to be great news to EDF. But one of the reasons it's thought to be targeting Sizewell C is because they want to get Chinese investment out of the project. This is perhaps a trade-off we have to make in the name of national security, but again, a big cost to the taxpayer that's going to be subsidizing it, and then also on top of that, having to pay their bills. So how do you make the case for more taxpayer subsidy into these projects? It's a fact that all technologies that are being brought on, if you look at you know the CFDs for onshore, offshore wind, for solars, the business models that are currently being developed with government for hydrogen projects, for CCUS, are questionable about whether they're funded by consumer bills or by taxpayers. But what's a fact is that there are government support schemes for all. I think with regards to Sizewell C, the purpose of developing the RAB model and, you know, changing the, the, the essentially the payback of the project over a period is to significantly reduce costs rather than building up the interest and not having any remuneration throughout the whole construction cycle. And I think it's something that we'll see referred to as infrastructure projects related to clean energy, such as industrial clusters, big hydrogen projects that are very, very capex intensive. I imagine we'll we'll see more RAB models in the future, for sure. With regards to investors in Sizewell, Clearly, the financial structure of the project and reaching bid in the, is, is still some way to go. 
at that point, we'll be looking for a number of investor partners in the project and, you know, of which, of course, the government could be one, not just a backer of it financially through a support scheme. So I think there's some way to go yet, though, before getting to that point. Mm. Rebecca, Alan and Johnny, thank you for joining me. 